Welcome. I'm Anna Jinja, your host of The Anna Jinja Show. I'm an international adoptee who has experienced the pain of rejection and the peace that comes with self-discovery and acceptance. Along the way, I've discovered that I am not alone. In some ways, we are all adopted into or out of homes, cultures, communities, and relationships as we grow and evolve. These experiences create who we are and who we are yet to be. So let's discover how we can be and become our best selves by connecting to the guest and creative content cradled in the belief that we belong, that we are worthy, and that we are loved in this world. So stay tuned and you may discover your own adoption story. Now I have to thank my friend Dr. Chris Bott for introducing me to our guest today. Uh, Chris sent me a link to an article titled, I was adopted from China. People ask if I feel lucky and my answer isn't what they expect. Very intriguing title. This HuffPost personal story was written by Iris Anderson, who is studying biology and psychology at Columbia University and is part of the class of 2026. She loves to write in her free time and is inspired by her personal experiences and those around her. So welcome, Iris. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. Yeah, I'm very, very excited. And I know that Dr. Bot is uh, in India right now, and she sends her best, and she was so excited that you were going to be a guest on the show. So um, a huge shout-out to Dr. Bot for making this possible. <laughs> so let's start, though. Would you share what is your adoption story? Yeah, so I was born in Hunan, China, um, and I was left at a train station in a basket when I was a few days old, um, where I was then picked up and taken to a care center where I then lived until I was about 11 months old. And then I was adopted by my parents with about eight other girls. And I grew up in a small town in the Midwest until I moved to New York City to go to college where I am now. And my parents have always been super supportive of me exploring my heritage and sharing my story. So did I hear that right, that your parents have eight other children? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Okay. I was adopted with um, the group of girls who were also adopted. There were eight. Oh, others. yes. I was like, my goodness, your parents are amazing. I can barely raise a dog. I can't imagine having eight <laughs> children. And, and so you grew up in a, a pretty homogenous community. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And what was that like for you? Um, I felt very isolating. Um, not so much when I was a little kid because you don't really notice those things when you're younger but as you grow up you do start to see that there aren't a lot of people who look the same way that you look it, it does feel kind of different I know that same experience I grew up in Iowa um, and when my parents were um, they were from North Dakota so when my parents oh, would take okay. us up to North Dakota, I definitely, which one does not look like the other? And so it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting experience. And one of the things when Dr. Bott sent me your article, I loved the title because people would always ask me um, if I felt lucky that I must feel so fortunate that I was adopted by an American family. And I never knew mm -hmm. how to answer that. And so... I grew up in the 80s, and so I think that there wasn't a lot of discussion about what it meant to be adopted. But I always remember feeling a little resentful when people would ask me that. And you talk about this in this article. And so um, t talk to us a little bit about how, why did you feel resentful about that question? Yeah, I think the biggest part of being asked if you feel lucky is that the obvious question is, yeah, um, I 
do feel lucky that I have the family that I have and that I was able to be loved and supported by such amazing people, um, parents, friends, family. But at the same time, I feel like it's an inappropriate question to be asking people um, because while I do feel lucky, I should not have to, you know, say it to ra random people when I feel like I portray it to the people who, um, who take care of me, who raise me, like my parents. Yeah, I think because we don't ask biological children, oh, you must feel so lucky that you're here and that you're part of the family. It makes yeah. you feel like uh, like you, you have to express extreme gratitude. Like, yes, I'm so grateful that I'm not in dire poverty or that I've been um, yeah. left to be dead or anything like that. It seems really a dramatic question to ask somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think what it does, it makes you feel like the other Oh, for sure. Yeah. That you don't belong. And so it's like, it, it is kind of a rude question. So what would you, how would you answer that question when people would, would ask you that? Well, when I was younger, I was mostly just confused by it um, because my parents are not the type of people to um, force me to, you know, show my gratitude, even though I obviously did. They weren't the type of people to be like, you should be you should feel so lucky that you have a roof over your head because mm. they just you know they were my parents so they just did it um so i didn't really understand the question or why someone would be asking me that because it wasn't really something that my parents and i talked about or that was brought up a lot of, about having to feel lucky or grateful well i liked how you said too that the the reason why partly as you got older that you became resentful is because how their questions commodified you. And I thought that was such an interesting way to describe and explain why you felt resentful when people would ask that. And what did you mean by that, by commodifying you? Yeah, I mean, well, like you said before, you don't ask someone's biological kids if they feel lucky to be in the family that they're in. So when someone comes up to me, um, you know, obviously I do not look like my parents. So when they come up to me and ask, do you feel lucky? It just is pointing out something that's different about me that I already know that is kind of like, hey, look at this person. She's different than everyone else. That doesn't really need to be pointed out. Mm, yeah, I love that. And so what advice would you give for those who want to ask that question? How do you think that you would prefer somebody ask you the question? Because at the heart of what they're asking is, um, how does it feel to be an, an adoptee? Or what is it like? And they're trying to connect, I think, in for the most part in nice ways. But do you have any yeah. advice for those people who want to ask you questions, but not for those adoptees that, that get asked that question? What would you prefer? I think personally, if someone asked, what are your experiences as an adoptee or what was it like growing up as an adoptee, it really kind of puts the focus on you instead and like your feelings instead of, um, you know, shifting it to your parents. Yeah. And do you have siblings? I have two older siblings. Yes. And are they adoptees as well? They are not. 
Yeah, and so that I'm the same. So I have two. So they, I was adopted as an infant, and then I have two um, siblings that are biological children of my parents. And so it's interesting that yours are older and mine were younger. So did, how mm-hmm. did that feel to be the youngest? Um, for me, I didn't really have an issue with it. Part of it was that both of them were so much older than me. My brother was 16 when I was adopted. So it was kind of like growing up as an only child. Oh, that's kind of nice. Sometimes, I mean, no offense to my brother or sister, but I think I would have liked to have been an only child. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, Simone and Tom. Love you. Mean it. So also one of the things that I thought was interesting is that in your article that you wrote that um, I love this sentence. I've always belonged to an in-between place, not quite Chinese, but definitely not white either. The spaces and resources available to transracial adoptees are few and far between, despite how large our population is, especially in the United States. And I think, so you write this now, and I think about when I grew up in the 80s, there really wasn't any, and I didn't have access to the internet, of course. I sound like an 80-year-old, don't I? And back then, we didn't even have <laughs> Google. Um, but I really didn't have any resources to be able to like, connect what I was feeling to any kind of academic research or other adoptee experiences. So it's interesting to me that today that there's still the spaces and resources available to transracial adoptees are far are few and far between. And like you were saying, your parents n- never hid the fact that you're an adoptee. You and I are similar. I mean, it was quite obvious that I was adopted. I'd have to be completely <laughs> just a moron not just look at those photos and see, hmm, which one is the adoptee here? Um, and they did the best. Your parents exposed you to Chinese traditions and cultures. Um, but talk a little bit about that that feeling as far as your identity is being caught between two different worlds. Yeah, I mean, um, like we both grew up in kind of more homogenous places. So wanting to fit in with the majority population that you grow up around and like that culture that you grow up around, I felt stuck between just wanting to fit in, but also wanting to explore my original cultural heritage um, and to connect with people who have more ideas or more experience with that but you know it's just so hard when there's no communities that really can teach you around you yeah and so you always had a longing to be able to learn more about your Chinese culture and and where you came from and so you actually visited China uh, twice right yes I did and so the first time that you went how old were you I was nine and did that change? So, what was that experience like as a nine-year-old um, to be able to experience that? Yeah. So we went with a tour group that was uh, kind of created through my adoption agency. So all of the girls, or I don't think there are any guys, but <laughs> all of the adoptees on the trip were adopted through the same agency. Um, and I was the youngest kid on the tour which was a little bit frightening for me, but I was taken in by a group of older girls who I really looked up to. Um, They included me in everything that we did. And while the trip was a bit overwhelming for me at nine years old, I really did love being able to explore the culture in China, especially at such a young age, which I think definitely 
um, I would not be the person that I am today if I was not able to go to China when I was nine. Um, and really just being able to meet those older adoptees and see how openly they welcomed me, it was just a really good experience. And then you went a second time when you were 15. Yeah. <laughs> and there that you were able to explore, you know, when you're in your teenage phase of existence. And so how did that change who you were? Yeah, when I was 15, I was way closer in age to most of the other um, adoptees that were on the trip. And I thought it was pretty cool because this time I was one of the older adoptees that some of the younger ones looked up to and wanted to hang out with. So I was really humbled that I got to be the sort of mentor figure for some of the younger ones and be one of those older figures that helps really just kind of guide them along in a way in the search for their identity. Um, this, this time when I went back, I met my foster mom or the woman who took care of me while I was at my care center. And I also met her the first time. Um, but this time her husband was also with her. And I found that really humbling to be able to see and spend time with the family that I spent my first 11 months of my life with. Um, this trip, I was really able to soak in everything. And I definitely felt a different connection to the girls than I did my first trip because we were all so close in age. And in fact, I just got lunch with one of them the last time I was in New York. So we're all still close. Mm, I love that. And you all, you talked about in your article about how you were able to reconcile guilt and curiosity. Yeah. And the guilt is feeling guilty for... I guess a lot of adoptees I've talked to, talked to um, around my age anyway, have felt guilty towards their um, adoptive parents for wanting to learn more about their um, birth heritage and culture, because it kind of feels in a way like you're betraying the people that you grew up with. Um, but you know, not that my parents ever pushed that narrative. It's just something that you grapple with those feelings because you think, well, should I even want it, be wanting to explore this different part of myself, even though I have such an amazing family life and friends already? And then that curiosity is about where did I come from and who am I? Yeah. Yeah. What, what it sounds like to me is that your parents have been incredibly supportive and, and have done what parents are meant to do, which is to be able to support and nurture who you are and not to like make you feel guilty about any of the things that want to that you wanted to explore to be able to connect to who you're meant to be in this world. So um, I, I would say to all those parents that have children that are um, international adoptees, it sounds like your parents... Um, have done a really amazing job of being able to support you. Yeah, they have honestly, I could not be going through this journey if I didn't have the parents that I have. And, you know, you see a lot of people in the comment section of my article saying like, oh, this is like ungrateful kids, blah, blah, blah. When my parents were the first people to read that article before I sent it to get published. And, you know, they're the ones who are telling me express your feelings, it could help other people. So, Yeah, I think that is um, amazingly brilliant. Um, and being able to 
be able to support the truth and to support what's in your heart and to help your child be able to um, embrace all aspects of who they are. So to all those that don't understand that and respond to that in a way where there's, I think that comes from a, a space of scarcity where there's not enough love to go around in the world and that it has to be a very narrow definition of what it means to be uh, adoptee and a child and uh, grateful. And so I think I love how your parents come from a place of abundance, that there's love and that there's room mm-hmm. and space to be able to be loved in all in all ways that are authentic and true. Yeah, love, for sure. Yeah. Good job, parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, Iris, because I believe that creative interchanges can help us discover who we can be and become our best selves, much like your parents have done, I reserve time to connect to artistic expressions of our shared experiences. And our music producer, Nick Kazerna, selected a song for you ca- titled Too Far Away from his album, Quiet Sing- Signals. And Nick sent this message to you before we listen to it. I want you to hear it. This song was written to be a reflective meditation on feeling disconnected and finding ways to reconnect. It was written during the pandemic when so many of us experienced confusion and alienation and even epiphanies about all aspects of our life, work, and families, relationships, goals, and dreams. Obviously, there are no lyrics, but the musical passages of verse and chorus are meant to provide a backdrop for the in-between state of recognizing the issues and challenges and the next steps to crossing the boundaries and finding new ways to move forward in life. It's not limbo. It's not a state of being stuck. It's that moment that the door opens and the contentment of realizing that you can step through it when you're ready. So Iris, here's Nick's song that he picked for you. Too Far Away.
listened to Too Far Away, one of Nick Kazernis' songs that he selected for you, Iris. So what do you think of what Nick had to say in his song? Oh, I thought that song was really beautiful. Um, as someone who really is interested in the musical world, um, the song really drew you in. It felt really calming and almost reassuring. And I thought that you could really feel the moment um, where... Like Nick said, the door opens and the movement of the music kind of pushes you through. Yeah, I agree. And I love that because I think that your story is about opening all these doors. Your parents opening the doors to be able to help you connect to where you were born and the culture and to other adoptees. To you opening the door to be brave to write what you did and share that article when you knew that it was, um, I'm guessing anyway, I should ask you that, I shouldn't assume, um, a really a place of vulnerability, but such courage to be able to share your story in an authentic way. So I agree. I think that um, Nick did an amazing job. And I know when he read the article and we had a conversation today that he really loved getting to know you and to be able to pick a song just for you. I could definitely feel that in a song selection. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, that's great. So I want to talk about when we talk about these creative interchanges, one of the um, things in the last part of the article, you talk about two people who inspired and encouraged you to write. Can you tell us about these two people and how they've supported you in your journey? Yeah, um, Emily Weitzman was my university writing professor last semester, um, and she really pushed me out of my comfort zone in terms of my writing style and process. I've always loved to write, and I think it's something that I lost a little bit since I was younger. And she was really great at helping me and her other students develop our individual writing processes and really make sure that she, we knew that there was no wrong way to write. Um, and then Dr. Tarini Mukherjee was my literature humanities professor last year. I met some amazing people through being in her class, and I really look up to and admire her both as an educator and as a person, because she pushed me to become a better writer and reader. And I'm so grateful to have had both of them as my professors. Oh, that's great. That's a nice shout out for those that have supported your journey to share your words and your experiences. Um, so what was it about when you were younger that you were, were you fearful about writing about your personal experiences? Um, when I was younger, I really enjoyed writing fictional stories more than I did writing about like myself. And now, and these two individuals helped you be able to take ownership of your story and to be, have the courage to do so. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, definitely. And so when you wrote this article and then you talked a little bit about um, some of the feedback that um, you received, are you still happy that you wrote the article? I definitely am. Um, so originally, I kind of wrote the article out of laziness because it was the very last paper of our um, semester. And I thought, you know, I don't have to do any research on this topic. I don't have to cite any sources because it's purely um, my experiences. But as I kept writing, I realized that it was a little bit more difficult because it was so personal. Mm. But I don't think I would have been able to do that if it wasn't for their support. That's great. And so as you received feedback um, about the article, did either of these two individuals help you um, respond or just like take in that feedback? Um, 
in terms of the negative feedback that I received, um, a lot of it just I felt like and other people in my life felt like it kind of came from a place of ignorance or just, you know, not really knowing about stories of adoptees. Um, but the positive feedback that I received was mostly from adoptees or adoptive parents who really resonated with my article and they were really the responses that I was looking for, you know, good or bad, because um, as an adoptee, I would have loved to have read more material and more ex read about more experiences of other adoptees when I was younger or even now. So uh, just being able to be that person for others is really the reason why I chose to publish and write this piece. Yeah, and thank you for doing so. I think it's incredibly powerful. And like I said, in the 80s, if I had read your article, I would have definitely felt um, supported and just understood. Because I think there was just really zero resources that either... Now, I have to take ownership too, because I think growing up as an adoptee, I just didn't want to talk about it. And I just wanted to fit in. So um, I, I just tried to make it fade into the background about me being an adoptee, even though it was quite visible um, evidence that I was an international adoptee. So I appreciate that. And I think also as a writer, you write what you know, and you um, okay. and, and what you wrote was so powerful because it's, it was the truth and just very, very honest and very well done. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. And as you think about your next piece that you'll be writing, have you given any thought about what you would like to publish next? Oh, I really haven't. Um, in all honesty, I wasn't necessarily expecting this article to get published in the first place because, like I said, it was part of our final assignment for that class. And it was an op-ed paper, so we were required to submit it to a publication. Mm. Um so I chose the HuffPost, submitted it for, you know, to get the credit. And then suddenly I was writing back. I got an email back. Um, hey, we'd like to publish this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is really cool. The last thing I'll ask you to do is that I always ask our guests to say um, what you think that your advice and what you ask listeners to do to create a world where everyone can feel that they belong, that they matter, and that they are loved. One of the most important things that you can do is to feel free and feel like you should share your stories and share your emotions and advocate for the things that you're passionate about. That's beautiful. I love that so much. Thank you, Iris Anderson, for sharing your story with us and to Dr. Chris Bott, especially for making this interview possible. Thank you to Adam Rich with WOUB for engineering and editing today's program. Our subject matter expert is Dr. Melissa Rizzo, and our storytelling producer and engineer is Zoe Lambert. Our creative and editing team includes Maddie, Maya, Alexa, Linnea, and Mark. And our music producer is, of course, Nick Kazernas, who has been writing genre-twisting songs for over 30 years, including this show's theme song, Way to Me, and who selected the song for Iris and her story. I'm your host, Anna Ginger, signing off with a reminder that the key to unlocking all things good in this world is love. Here, you are loved and you are home. Always a friend and fan, this is Anna Ginger wishing you days filled with love, laughter, and peace. Mm -hmm.